Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music, the tall tales, true stories, and current goings-on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter and swim buck-naked in summer. Welcome to episode 39 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom along with the rest of the crew, and it's our privilege to welcome you to our latest show. This month's musical guests are Amanda and Brian Webb. We'll share a conversation with them and hear some of their music. Annabelle Hopkins will tell us about the Partake Film Festival, and Alan Berkmeyer will share some information about Nashville's Relay for Life event. Jeff Tryon shares the story of how Piogi got its name, and Dave Seastrom talks about the importance of water. We have another segment of Kerry Ray's Forest Song. Rick dishes out another ramble. We'll hear the community calendar, and we have a tribute to community leader John Mills. We'll start off with an interview and musical selection from Amanda and Brian Webb. We'll also hear from Annabelle Hopkins as she tells us about the Partake event. It is our privilege to introduce you to Brian and Amanda Webb, who are live in our studio at this moment. And not only that, they have recorded the very first live music in our brand new studio here at the History Center. And friends, let me tell you, it was spectacular. Amanda, I'm, you know, I'm looking at your resume, and aside from all this different stuff that you do, you were at the IU Jacobs School of Music studying opera. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and I read that you were in 20 productions in four years. Were those all operatic productions? Or? Uh, no, not all operatic. They kept you busy. There were plenty of uh, choral performances and okay. extra performances. And I sought them out. I, I would perform for pretty much anything. Okay. <laughs> so if there was something to perform for, I would just raise my hand and volunteer. <laughs> so uh, amongst the uh, different operas, do you have a favorite? Ghost of Versailles was one of my very favorite productions written by a composer who's actually still alive, Corigliano. When we did it at IU, no, they had done it at the Met, so it wasn't a debut. But Corigliano thought it was such a big deal, he actually came to the performance to see it at IU. The production was spectacular. It was very fun. I know you didn't start off in life doing opera. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, we were talking earlier, and so it all began for you with an interest in vocals that uh, your teacher led you in a piano, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I had just always wanted to sing. Nobody would take me, especially back then. There's such a change in concept nowadays. I mean, people are widely accepting popular music as an art form. I mean, back then it was kind of a, this subversive culture that only happened on the radio, and you only did pop music if you were uneducated. I mean, I don't know if that was the thought or, or how you got there, but you didn't study popular music. You just kind of happened into it. And so t if you studied, it was always classical. I wanted to study and they, no teacher would take you until you're 13 and your voice changed and they felt you were mature enough to be able to handle lessons. 
And when I finally did go, my teacher looked at me and said, oh, that's nice, and you've got some nice technique, and that's good. You've, you're talented, uh, but you need to learn how to play the piano because nobody's going to listen to you until you're 21. So learn to read music, which I thought, okay, fine. It didn't matter to me what it was. If it was music, I was going to be about it. So I took up piano. And again, it was all classical. I didn't actually learn anything popular piano until I moved. I did a little bit of jazz in high school, but not so much. Mm. You kind of had to pick which camp you were going to be in. And so at some point, you chose not to be a professional opera singer. Yeah, I uh, I met this guy right here. Yeah, <laughs> Things happen. Yeah. Kind of changed playing, everything yeah. for yeah. me. <laughs> there was one point when I looked at him after college, and I said, you know, the next thing for me, I need to move to New York or Chicago. I need to go and and we had started dating. He was my best friend before that, and we had started dating. You know, finally I, I gave in. That's a nice story for later. But we started dating, and he looked at me, and he's like, you know, I don't want you to go. And I said, okay. <laughs> so life turns on a dime, and this revolved love. Yeah, it really did. In reality, what is it that you get if you study opera and you choose to pursue it? You're going to go to New York, and you're going to have a certain number of shows, or you go to Europe, and you do the audition circuit, and you get some gigs, and you don't get some gigs. But, I mean, if you're going to be a big opera star, you probably know it by the time you're 20. I knew I wasn't going to be the big shebang. It wasn't going to go... I wasn't going to be the next Mm -hmm. Renee Fleming. And then I was looking at the people who I was going to school with, and I saw, okay, this is what happens to you. You get a master's, and this is what happens to those people who leave school and they've had their master's. And there were very few of them that were coming back touting, you know, this big successful career. And in the end, most of them... Yeah, I wasn't really excited about what I was seeing down the road, and I looked at him, and I was really excited about him. <laughs> so instead, you, you you married a Brown County boy, and I had did. five sons. Yeah. Against all of you know anything I thought about my life, I never thought I would have kids. Never thought I'd get married. <laughs> Now, Brian, you also attended the IU yeah, yeah, I, School of Music. Yeah, I was yeah. in the School of Music as well. And, and that was funny. When, when I was in the music school, she was as well. And we didn't really cross paths in the school. I mean, other than just, you know, there's classes and you see a lot of people. And and, and as, a, as a male vocalist, it, it's a lot different for a guy at IU than it was a woman at IU at the time. Kind of like the guitar player in Nashville. I mean, it's a dime a dozen type of thing if you're a soprano at IU. And as, as a tenor or a bassist and a vocalist at IU, you could write your career there. Now, I didn't find it attractive. There was a professor there, uh, Michael Gordon, Dr. Gordon, who he said, hey, and this is this is one of the tenured professors there. And he goes, hey, I've seen you do some stuff. And he goes, oh, you saw me audition? No, no, not your audition. I saw you playing guitar out there in the hall. And, and uh, he goes, you know, you need to quit school and go to New Orleans. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know, I'm here. All of our tuitions are paying you, and your your, your advice, as my professor, is to quit. And I took that advice as as I did look at the career path there in opera and 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 just performance in general. And and you know, Pizza Hut was the career. I mean, you went yeah. and, and mm-hmm. you paid your dues, and that's what you did. And mm-hmm. and I don't know why. I, I had this knack. I, some of you may know my dad, Larry Webb, and there's a lot of horse trading and a lot of types of. Career 
creative ways to make money and things. And I, I was fascinated with business and money and commerce and so forth. And just following a particular path wasn't as exciting to me. So I, you know, I finished doing things at IU and, and music, but I, I also studied history and religious studies uh, there in another department there at IU. And I just really enjoyed my time there, but I, opera wasn't going to be there for myself either. You've always had a passion for the blues. I remember as a young kid, I mean, two, three, four years old, after church on Sunday, Dad, you know, had the album collection, you know, the size of a Volkswagen, you know, and we'd listen to everything. And it was a lot of, your know, 60s and 70s classical rock, but there's a lot of blues undertones. And he always pulled out the old albums, which were, you know, very progressive at their time. And through going to school, I remember what really turned me on, it was, uh, oh, shortly after Stevie Ray Vaughan had died. Yeah. And all the public television stations were playing the Austin City Limits. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching him for the first time, I was probably 12 years, from that point on, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's great. <laughs> That's some good music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then it, that's when it started to kind of grab me a little bit. Yeah. yeah, and then from there, you know, just going back to listening to all the B.B. King and everything else. Oh. It was great stuff. Well, it's a bottomless well. Yeah, yeah. But Amanda, you said you're cutting back. Yeah, I am. I'm going to be cutting back a little bit because Brian and I are getting ready to make a big change, which I'm very excited about. We are um, bringing our kids home. We're going to homeschool next mm-hmm. year uh, with the big objective that we're going to be able to perform more. With the kids home, we'll do school during the day, and when Brian gets home from his day, job we will then have time to get in the studio and record and practice and yeah, up to this point it's gigs. been we've never been able to work on it uh-huh. it's always been okay yeah next thursday at eight o'clock and you just finished a studio we built our studio like 2007 i started teaching out there when we yeah, we yeah. built the this house that's that when we expanded because she would have four to five students always and uh, yes you had 30 students this year or? yeah 30 students it gets pretty big we got a big recital so um, how can we get a hold of you? Uh, website is webstudios.org. So it's W-E-B-B, studios is plural, dot org. And then our Facebook page is Web Studios. Or you can always hook up with me on uh, my Facebook page personally, Amanda Marie Webb. Guys, thank you so much for coming in this evening. It's well, been thanks. thanks for having us. It was fun. It was great. We had yeah. a great time. Okay, let's talk about summertime. Yeah. That's classic. Yeah, actually, um, it it was uh, originally um, in an opera. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Porgy it was Porgy and Bess. It was originally in Porgy and Bess, but it has been uh, redone and redone and redone so many times, and so summer. Uh, and it happens to be. Uh, Brian's dad's favorite song. He requests it every single time. Well, that's good enough right there. (laughs) So we do it all the time for him. Fish are jumping, and the cotton is high. She's good looking 
pleasure to have Annabelle Hopkins in the studio, and she's going to tell us all about Cinefest. Hi, Annabelle. Hi. Glad to be here. Tell us about this event. Okay. Well, this is a new event. Um, it's organized by Art Alliance Brown County, which is the local organization that represents artists of all types. And it's a film festival about art and artists. It will be held June 13th and 14th, which are a Saturday and Sunday at the Brown County Playhouse and also at the History Center. The event is planned to be the first of an annual film festival that will support the new Arts and Entertainment Cultural District, which is called Arts Village, Brown County. We hope to help them with funding and increased visibility for the art colony. Film Festival will feature five films. Four of them are award-winning documentaries, and the main film on Saturday night is a full-length recent major motion picture. For tickets, you can go to browncountyplayhouse.org. They have a lot of details about this project. Additional information is at artalliancebrowncounty.org. We would like to thank some major sponsors and contributors, including Kathy Anderson, Sweet Tea's Tea Shop, The Cornerstone Inn, Austin Insurance, Michael's Flowers, Hills of Brown Realty, Sio Design, Aaron Darcy Design, and Clover Children's Store. We also thank the Brown County Winery and Chateau Thomas for gift bag contributions. 
Annabelle, while I have you here, why don't you tell me about a couple of other things that are going on? I understand there's an event called Partake. Yes, that's another new program this year. It's a wine and art program. It takes place every fourth Saturday from 3 to 5 in the afternoon at Chateau Thomas Winery. Every month a different artist will do an informal two-hour workshop, everything from jewelry, mosaic, to all types of painting. All participants receive a beverage of their choice and snacks, plus all materials and supplies are included, and it's just an informal fun time. We had the first one in April, and we had a full house, and people loved it, and some of them want to come every month no matter what the subject is. So this is a totally hands-on event. Very much. You don't have to have any experience, and you'll learn and just have fun. It's, it's more meant for fun, socializing, drinking a little wine, eating some good snacks from sweet teas. and. Well, tell me about the Art Walk. Okay, this is the sixth year of the Second Saturday Village Art Walk, which local downtown galleries participate in. It runs from 5 to 8 in the afternoon every second Saturday, and the galleries remain open, and most of them serve refreshments. Some of them have music, some of them have special exhibitions or demonstrations, and it's basically an open gallery time for people to go visit the galleries. There are nine galleries participating this year. Our brochures are out. They're available at the visitor center and at most galleries in town, and so we encourage people to take a look, meet the artists, come out and enjoy an afternoon with wine and snacks and, and art. It seems like wine is the common denominator. <laughs> All of this is under uh, the arts and entertainment? No, it's, these are actually projects of Art Alliance Brown County, but uh, we are very supportive of the cultural district. We want to see it succeed because it is going to help promote Brown County arts to everyone, and that will help everybody that's an artist. We are working very closely with them on these projects, and we, with the Cinefest, we hope that at some point in the future, if it makes money, that we can help them provide a staff person for their district. Uh, they're, they're all volunteers, and it would be nice to have a staff person who can handle a lot of the marketing and media for all of the artists in Brown County and all the arts organizations. Well, it sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, Annabelle Hopkins, for coming in. Now we pause for station ID. WFHB is looking for a few good underwriters of this great program. Your underwriting puts your business in the forefront of WFHB listeners' minds, the majority of whom prefer to buy local. If your business is looking for an on-air presence and is interested in supporting your community, contact Dorothy at WFHB, 812-323-1200. Thank you. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. We begin with the latest installment of For a Song from Carrie Ray. And Jeff Tryon shares his Piogi story in My Brown County. Rick Fettig invites us into his world with another essay, and we'll listen to more music from Amanda and Brian Webb. Welcome to Forest Song. I'm your host, Carrie Ray, and though I don't usually start with a topic, I will deviate a little 
to tell you that I want to talk about influence. And as I thought about today's session, it took me back in time. Hard as it may be to fathom, before I turned to a life of rhyme, I was once a corporate boardroom type. I know, I know, you're thinking that me, with a projector and a laser pointer, standing in front of a whiteboard is as shocking to you as seeing your homeroom teacher at the grocery store or bank when you were in the third grade. I mean, she lived at school, slept under her desk, took all of her meals at the cafeteria, right? Just like you picture me, living in the woods, whittling sticks, fishing, picking guitar, and writing songs. Well. You'd be right about that now, but before the decision to reevaluate my priorities and get my life back in alignment with my own values, I spent many hours under the fluorescent sun providing coaching and facilitating brainstorming and brand discovery sessions for corporate clients. And I learned a few things doing that work that I find useful as I approach the craft of songwriting. One of those learnings was about influence. When working with groups, I would have folks write answers on paper and pass them forward. Then we would go over them together. This really cut down on the influences of groupthink and peer approval and manipulation. Now how in the world does this apply to songwriting, right? Well, I've given a lot of thought lately to how the instrument I am writing with impacts the direction of a song. Most songs start and sometimes begin to write themselves in my head but eventually I bring an instrument into the process. Sometimes I'll already have a feel for where the tune is going stylistically and will gravitate toward the instrument that seems to best suit it. If it feels bluesy, I may grab electric guitar, more folky, perhaps acoustic or mandolin. And if it's feeling particularly swampy, I'm bound to reach for one of my resonators. But it's important to understand when and how to apply the influence of an instrument to the writing process. It can be very helpful, but also a little dangerous. You see, a song, as defined by the folks who pay royalties to songwriters, is the combination of melody and lyric. And while it is less likely that an instrument choice will have a strong influence on lyric, the timbre and or harmonic content provided by an instrument and the chord progression you may choose to play can nearly dictate a melody if you let it. Many times, if you play a chord progression, it can lock your ears into the melody they want or expect to hear next. To avoid this rut, I will often choose a less obvious instrument stylistically, or may pluck out individual notes on my way to a melody instead of chords. Lately, I've even resorted to writing the complete melody of a song vocally before I ever touch an instrument, so I'm in no way influenced by its voice. So your homework is to write a song, melody and lyric, without the aid of an instrument. If you haven't tried this before, it may be the first time you hear your own voice in its raw, uninfluenced, unadulterated glory. And don't be at all surprised if you have the urge to weep when you do. I'm Carrie Ray. Join me next time on For a Song. If you have ideas, questions, or topics you would like to have covered on For a Song, please send them along. You can reach me via the contact page of my website at carryray.com. That's C-A-R-I-R-A-Y dot com. 
thanks for listening. This is My Brown County with Jeff Tryon. The more I thought about what really makes Brown County, Brown County, the more I began to realize how we each have our own particular Brown County. In a way, Brown County is what we each bring to it, what we find there for our own, what we each make of it. No one else sees it probably in the same exact way that I do. That's what makes it my Brown County. Grandpa named Pioga. I suppose every family has its family legends, stories of previous generations whose identity and motives and actions may have been made murky by the passage of time. A snatch of a story with one foot in legend and one in recollection that may or may not square with the known facts, but must in some way reflect some essential truth worth preserving. In my family, one of those stories that has always been told is how my grandfather, W.E. Tryon, was the person who named the extreme northeastern Brown County village of Pioga. W.E., apparently known as Ed or Eddie, grew up in the environs of Spearsville, Pioga, and in between them, Gold Point Road. Although, following a family tradition, he was actually born outside of Brown County in Findlay, Illinois. It is a long, complicated, romantic, dark tale of young love and families intertwined by the frontier. Like a lot of family legends, I had always assumed the naming of Pioga's story was questionable at best. As the story was told in my family, the small hamlet was applying for a post office, but as commonly happened in those days on the western frontier, had to pick a new name because their original choice had already been taken. If anyone knows what that was, I'd be interested to find out. At a meeting called to designate a new name, a long civic debate ensued wherein many suggestions were made, many arguments and objections expressed, and intractable stubbornness wore on into the night. Finally, my exasperated grandfather was supposed to have blurted out, why don't you just name it Pioga, and made his exit leading to general laughter. But a few hours later, upon reflection, Pioga started to sound better and better to them, and it was adopted as the new official town name. Anyone who's ever been involved in any public discussion of a civic nature here will recognize the true Brown County and character of this folktale. A few years ago, while going through some of my father's personal effects, I came across a folded yellow newspaper clipping from the old Indianapolis News, the now-defunct afternoon paper. A clipped column under the heading Ringside in Hoosierland by a fellow named Wayne Guthrie, it sported the headline, Author of Pioga Finally is Found. Eureka, Guthrie began, I seem to have found part of the answers to the questions that have puzzled me and readers about the peaceful little rural community of Pioga in the northeastern part of Brown County. Guthrie then revealed his source, which turned out to be my Uncle Bob, Robert Tryon, a fantastic character in his own right, worthy of many other stories, rest his adventurous soul, and he quotes his take on the Pioga story. Since he was older than my father, I consider that this might at least be a cleaner retelling of the tale, even if it was only sopped up by some credible reporter with nine inches to fill. Quote, many years ago, my father, who died in 1938, told me he was the one who suggested the name of Pioga, Guthrie quotes Uncle Bob as saying. 
He said folks had gathered in an old barn to select a name for the town, and they were considering naming it Pogo. He said, name it Pioga, and they did. Oh, he was just running around there, and when he shouted out that name, he was just smarting off, and, and they picked it up and adopted it, end quote. One detail that emerges from the mists of time to inform my tale was his age. It had never occurred to me that when he named Pioga, he was just a kid. Uncle Bob said, he was born in 1877, and I believe he was only eight or nine years old when the town was named. That would have been 1885 or 1886. Eddie, W.E., would go on to become, quote, sort of a local legend around Brown County in the early days, according to the article. Quote, he played the fiddle in the Old Fiddlers Contest at the annual Old Settlers Picnic, as it was called in those days, near what is now called Bean Blossom. However, Bean Blossom was called Georgetown then, Uncle Bob said. W.E. Ed Tryon played at Saturday Night Barn Dances in Helmsburg, played with Doc Bicell's band on the radio, and played with Roy Houchins's band on the back of a flatbed truck at the Bean Blossom Jamboree, the precursor to the Bill Monroe Festival. Quote, he told me lots of stories about the folklore of the time. There were always some kind of ghost stories going around, and people were very superstitious. Included in those superstitions, according to family lore, was the belief that Grandpa could, quote, take the fire out of Burns by blowing on them because he had never seen his father. Now, as bizarre as that sounds, I came across a citation in a book called Kentucky Superstitions by Daniel Lindsay, which relates that, quote, thrush in a child can be cured if a person who has never seen his father will blow his breath three times into the child's face for three days. After his father, John Tryon, abandoned his mother, Sarah Stoltz Tryon, and theoretically died, she remarried and W.E. was raised as a half-brother in that family. Sarah went on to marry three more times. She's buried at Crown Hill Cemetery in Indianapolis, and her Marion County death certificate states that her mother, Eliza Connor, was born in Brown County. Although Frank Hohenberger was known to be fond of photographing musicians, the only trace of Grandpa I can find in the Lilly Library collection of Hohenberger photos is a 1927 image of the W.E. Tryon home near Morgantown, Bean Blossom Road, which features my father and his twin brother sitting on the front porch as eight-year-old boys in overalls. Essentially a sharecropper who grew tomatoes on contract for the canning factory to keep the family afloat, he and my grandmother Rilda struggled through the Great Depression with ten children. They were truly one of those Brown County families of which it is said that they were so poor that they didn't know it was a depression, because they were already living at that survival level anyway. W.E. died in 1938, and according to his obituary, he worked the day before he died on projects for the Federal Public Works Program. He is buried with Rilda at the Wesleyan Church Cemetery in Spearsville. He lived and died in and around Brown County, and we really know precious little about him, except that he named Pioga, no small claim to fame. But why Pioga? Where the heck did he get that from? It might be instructive to do a map search of the area around his birthplace in Findlay, Illinois. Not too far away lies the little town of Neoga. Yep, my folks have been around Brown County for five generations. Seems like, like we tried to escape every couple of generations, but the thing just keeps drawing us back in. 
That's what makes it my Brown County. We finally gotten an undiscovered inside connection with Toyota Distribution. We have obtained 15 out of 5,000 special edition 2016 Toyotas. It's an unknown fact that when Kodak went out of business a few years ago, Toyota acquired a division of Kodak. This is where the idea of the backing up camera came from. These special edition Toyotas have cameras everywhere. There's the dash cam that shoots in four directions. There's side cams, rear cams, cameras that shoot under the car, above the car. These cars can tell you if a bird is about to spot you so that you can avoid it and keep your freshly washed car clean. Come now, come this week, and save thousands. Turn left at the Hobnob onto Helmsburg Road, past Annandale as you descend the steep hill before the sharp 90-degree turn. Jump off onto Oak Grove Road, past Country Club Road on the west, then as you pass Buck and Bass Drive on the right, and as you come to the creek, look across the pasture on the left, and we're back there behind the pine trees. We're trying to be obscure because we want you, our friends and neighbors, to get the opportunity of this deal. Toyota has adapted the name of this special edition to emphasize its special abilities. Come quickly by now. They only made 5,000 of these, and we have 15 of them. Don't come down if it's raining. We're in the floodplain, and we have to shut down and tread water until the water goes away. Our office is in the camo tent. Come quick and be one of the select few who owns one of the special edition 2016, the Toyota Kodak Camry. Let's talk about Before He Cheats. Sure. Originally a Carrie Underwood country song, but you know everything we do ends up being blues. We just take a song and kind of hack it. <laughs> There's a song title right there. <laughs> That's pretty close to everything we do from now on. It's going to be funky. <laughs> it's going to be funky. <laughs> right now, he's probably slow dancing with a beach blonde tramp, and she's probably getting frisky. Right now, he's probably buying her some fruity little drink, because she can't shoot away. Right now he's probably up behind her with a pool stick showing her how to shoot a combo And he don't know that I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped up four-wheel drive Carved my name into a head leather seat I took a Before he cheats Right now she's probably up singing some white trash version of Shania karaoke Right now she's probably saying I'm drunk and he's thinking that he's gonna Come! 
before he cheats. Oh, before he cheats. I might have saved a little trouble for the next girl. Cause the next time that he cheats, oh, you know it won't be on. Pause now for station identification. WFHB is looking for a few good underwriters of this great program. Your underwriting puts your business in the forefront of WFHB listeners' minds, the majority of whom prefer to buy local. If your business is looking for an on-air presence and is interested in supporting your community, contact Dorothy at WFHB, 812-323-1200. Thank you. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. In our final segment, we begin with the community calendar, and Dave Seastrom shares his thoughts on water. Alan Berkmeyer tells us about Nashville's Relay for Life. We have a tribute to community leader John Mills and a Father's Day poem by Gunther Flum, plus more music from Amanda and Brian Webb. Welcome to the community calendar for the month of June through the 4th of July for Brown County, Indiana. On June the 8th at 7 p.m., the 10 o'clock Beeline Beekeepers Club will meet at the lower level meeting room at the Brown County Library, 205 North Locust Lane. The Brown County Photography Club will meet from 7 to 9 p.m. at the lower level meeting room at the Brown County Library on Thursday, June the 11th. The Bill Monroe Bluegrass Festival will be held June 13th through the 20th at Bill Monroe Memorial Park and Campground in Bean Blossom. June 13th is the Village Art Walk in Nashville, and on the same weekend is the Cinefest at Brown County Playhouse. On June 27th, there is the Partake Art Event at Chateau Thomas Winery. On Saturday, June 20th, from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., 
is the Brown County Relay for Life at the Brown County High School, a community conversation on the interplay of Brown County historic and natural assets will be held on June 25th at 6.30 p.m. at the Brown County Library. The annual community fireworks will be presented on the 4th of July, and last but not least, the Farmer's Market at St. David's in Bean Blossom is every Friday evening at 4 p.m. and lasts till 7. I'll see you there. It's hard to imagine anything more precious than water, especially if you don't have any. From the time of settlement to the present, Brown County has always been short of water. Our streams dry up in summer and sometimes even our ponds. Drilling a well is always hit or miss, and even a good well can run dry in a prolonged drought. The establishment of the Brown County Water Utility in 1964 changed the way most people in the county obtain water. The water utility allowed the expansion of new housing, but even today, not everyone has access. In order to hook up with the water utility, you have to live within a certain distance of an existing water line. A whole lot of people in Brown County don't live close enough, and those folks have to come up with their own water. When my wife and I purchased the land we live on in 1981, we didn't give much thought to water. After all, our neighbors drilled a well that more than supplied their needs, and we thought it would be easy to do the same. I had a dowser come out and witch a potential well site for our new home. He was a fellow about middle age, and he brought his dowsing stick with him. I asked if it was a willow fork, and he laughed, saying that willow is too thirsty and can't be trusted. He liked to use ash. He walked around with his fork stick firmly held in his hands until the ash twisted and pointed to the earth. He returned to the same location from several different angles, and the stick always pointed down at the same spot. Being the skeptic that I am, I asked if he'd mind letting me put my hands on the dowsing fork next to his, and he agreed. When we approached the area he'd marked, the fork twisted in my hands and pointed to the earth. That was good enough for me, and we decided to drill a well where the dowser indicated there was water. The well drilling company came out and drilled a 200-foot hole. When they hit a small amount of water, I was ecstatic. The drilling was done by a couple of displaced Texas wildcatters, and I asked one of these crusty old gentlemen how much water he thought was there. He was taking a leak at the time, and he said, Hell, son, I'm making more water than your well is. Turned out he was right. Our costly well didn't produce sufficient water for our use, and the water it did produce was bitter and unusable. You know, I should have tried to light it. We might be rich. Dean Walker installed our septic system when we built the house, and he recommended that we set up a cistern. Dean and I installed a 5,000-gallon tank that captured rainwater from the gutters on the house. In the summer, when the rain stopped falling, the tank would run dry and we purchased water by the truckload. It's kind of expensive to haul water, so we decided to dig a pond and use the pond water to supplement the rainfall. About the time our cistern went dry from lack of rain, the water level in our pond was too low to pump it out. So even after digging a pond, we still didn't have reliable water. After a few years, I added a room to the house and I built three new porches. Each of them had their own roof, so we decided to add some additional water storage and hook up the new roofs to the system. 
This time we installed three 1500 gallon tanks that are connected to each other. And now every roof in the house gravity feeds rainwater into the tanks. Our total storage capacity is 9,500 gallons. We're self-sufficient most years, but when there's a drought, we still have to buy water by the truckload. There's more to having fresh water than just collecting the rain. Rain is surprisingly filthy, and this makes sense if you think about it. Droplets of water form around dust particles and fall to the earth as rain. Unfortunately, this dust can be anything, including toxins from air pollution. We have gravel filters at each downspout, and from there the water is gravity-fed into the cisterns. Over time, the cisterns accumulate enough dirt from the sky that we have to clean them and the gravel filters in order to maintain the water quality. The water is pumped into the house from the cisterns where it's run through particulate and carbon filters before it enters the rest of the system. The water at this stage isn't safe to drink. We have a reverse osmosis filter under the kitchen sink that finishes the process. And this is the water we drink, make ice, and cook with. Keeping our water clean is an ongoing process. I've already purchased the parts and we'll be adding a whole house filter system to replace our old canister filters. It's about making do with what you have. We love where we live and we need water just like everybody else. There are places in this world where people haul water by the bucket load, and there are whole regions of the earth where water is becoming increasingly scarce. So we're lucky to have it. If all of this sounds like a lot of work and money, you're right. Given our need for water, this begs the question, what would you do to have water? In our world, the answer is anything it takes. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. Alan Berkmeyer here this evening to discuss the Relay for Life. Thanks for coming in, Alan. So tell us about this event. Well, Relay for Life is one of the main fundraisers for the American Cancer Society. We raise a lot of money to help cancer research and also help cancer programs in the community and nationally and actually worldwide. This is the 30th year for Relay for Life, and I believe it's the 20-something-ish year uh, for Brown County. Well, when is this event and what, what will be happening on that day? It starts at 8 in the morning and it ends at about 11 at night on June 20th, uh, the Brown County High School track. Uh, and we'll be having events all day. It's not a race. It's not like a relay race. But the idea is to have someone from your team on the track at all times to support those who are going through cancer, to honor those who have had it. So if we're interested in getting in touch with, what is that website? It's relayforlife.org. And you'll see a little, like, find an event tab. Or you can, like I said, you can come down to the uh, event and register at the event. Or if you don't want to register, you just want to come out and support. And again, all the money goes to Relay. Well, thank you, Alan, so much for coming in this evening. I met John Mills when I was 20 years old, about 1977. I had just moved to Brown County. His pottery shop was one of the first business establishments I had visited. It was the first time I'd ever seen anyone making stoneware pottery, the old-fashioned way, turning them on a wheel and firing them out back in a wood kiln. Lots of fire and flames. It was really exciting. John was a big man with a mop of hair and a fuzzy beard. He was usually at the wheel turning something and educating bystanders on the process when I stopped in. 
He made many things, such as hummingbird feeders, bowls, coffee mugs, my first purchase, and oil lamps. He often had an oil lamp lit up for demonstration in the window. I really liked the old-time feel it gave that little one-room cottage. But mainly I stopped by the pottery shop for honey. John raised bees and sold the honey in one-quart fruit jars in his shop. And let me tell you, it was the good stuff. Dark amber in color, super thick, and you might even find a bee wing or a leg part in it. It was authentic and delicious. It was an unexpected gift for my mother-in-law at Christmas time. Well, in closing, I just want to say thanks for the memories, John. It's been a pleasure knowing you. Reflections of John Mills I got acquainted with John soon after he came back from out west. After Sunday breakfast with friends, I would stop by and visit in his shop. He liked to read newspapers in quiet before the shoppers arrived. We used to talk for hours and discovered we held shared values. Sometimes Pete Siebert would join us, and during these conversations, we nurtured Pete's Jacob Brown dream and my green party hopes. We laughed a lot, too, as we shared town gossip and our life histories. John had a steady, sane assurance about him. No doubt the basis for his being a father figure and mentor to many. Yet he had his staunch opinions, but was willing to listen and like debate. I admired his self-sufficiency and how the family found ways to integrate the modern world while grounded in a simpler lifestyle. He cared deeply about his community, friends, and family. I was not surprised he decided to run for a nonpartisan office. Here, too, his thrifty, common-sense thinking was in evidence when he stated, The school system is the largest spender of tax money in the county. One could feel secure knowing his steady hand was at the wheel. I always enjoyed his visits to Raps, our local writers group. His poems were short, pithy, and often funny musings about the doings of mundane life, which led to deeper thoughts about the nature of reality. Pete went on to create his walking storyteller, and I started a Green Party chapter. John attended many early meetings and gave us money, but would never become a member. It was then I learned John had an ancestor who had been burned as a witch in Massachusetts, and it was a point of honor not to join groups. I liked that her death had inspired this independent streak in all the Mills brothers, and so something about her remained alive all these years later. Maybe that's the point. We leave a legacy of our things and accomplishments. 
and more importantly, of our beingness. The material things drop away in time, yet the ways we touch and are touched by loved one's character, those are our real legacies. A piece of him goes with each who knew him. We are better people for his example to light our thoughts and deeds. Yet we remember him best through the love in our hearts. And I'd like to share one of my favorite poems that John wrote that was published in Hill Sounds 3, a Raps Compendium of Members. It's entitled, The New Dark Ages. The Dark Ages seemed so jaded when we learned about them in school. How could the powerful of that time condone their self-serving suppression of knowledge? We dismissed it as the ignorance of an ancient time, but it's back. Our leaders alter or suppress studies that contradict their policies. Their dogma supplants research. War continues unsupported by reasons. Earlier contrarians were silenced by death. We silence ourselves by inaction. King for a Day by Gunther Flum On Father's Day we get a tie and told we are the greatest guy, but mothers are another story. Mother's Day gets all the glory, and so I find it truly sad this disappointment day for Dad. Of course, we take it all in stride, so we come out the other side, looking humble, grateful too, for all the things we do for you. But you would think on Father's Day that things would be the other way. I think you know just what I mean on Mother's Day, why she's the queen. So here's the problem and the thing, exactly when is Dad the king? In every movie I have seen, the king is cruel, kind, or mean, and every subject must obey everything the king would say. And as I've seen and heard it said, he has the right to chop your head. But I can tell you in my house that that won't cut it with my spouse. The only one who's going to die is me if I don't like my tie. Don't get me wrong, I think it's great that every year upon this date the family gathers with respect to see a man who's so henpecked that on that day and for a treat his family takes him out to eat and after they've all had their fill they leave their dad there with the bill. You'll never see a mother pay for any meal on Mother's Day. And so I'm telling every dad that on this day they should be glad for though it's not what we expect we get to hold our heads erect for what my wife had said was true. The queens can cut your head off, too. Let's just call them two days a draw. Yours truly, Gunther Flum. Which one do you want to do? Uh, try the Gary Moore. Yeah, let's do the Gary Moore. This is Brian's favorite. Gary Moore. Uh, Irish Blues. So 
But I've still got the blues for you Thanks for tuning in to episode 39 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. You can stream this or any of our shows from our website, browncountyhour.com. While you're there, take a look at our Woodwatch page, devoted to informing the public about the situation our forest lands are facing. This show was produced by Jeff Foster, Pam Rader, Rick Vedic, Vera Grubbs, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank our guest host, Paulette Justice. As always, we offer a big howdy-do and thanks to our friend Slats Clue for our theme music. You've been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.